John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 047.ps9111 certificate number 21873 the angels of mons The Angels of Mons sounds like a fictional, uh, like a pornographic sci-fi story in a Kurt Vonnegut novel. Yeah, because Mons is descriptive or it's the name of a, a portion of the female genitalia. Is that not right? Yeah, it's Latin for mount. The mound. So that's why there's Olympus Mons on Mars, you know, a giant volcano. But there's also, you know, there's also a, a, a mound as part of the, you know, female it, it, it sounds like a Harlan Ellison reference, right? That that would be a, a short story, where all of a sudden it got really gross and. Yeah, it's one of the one of the ones he did for Playboy. So yeah, right. You got to have Mons in the name. S super patriarchal. All of a sudden, all the ma male characters are uh, are like very virile. All the female characters swoon. But it's not a uh, Harlan Ellison or Kilgore Trout story. Um, the Angels of Mons, it's a city in France or in Belgium. Belgium, yes. Right. It's the French-speaking part of Belgium. It's a Walloon city. A Walloon city. I know how much you love Belgian. Have we talked about your deep love for Belgium on the show before? I have, I have a, a considerable love of Belgium. Uh, Belgium. I also have a love of Belgian. Uh, but yeah. The, <laughs> Waffles, comma, Belgian, comma, John's love for. The, uh, the whole nature of the nation of Belgium is something we should cover later at greater length. Because I think it's a wonderful example of, of how we draw borders, how people are agglomerated. We don't want Belgium to be lost to the future. Oh, uh, boy, I feel like Belgium is under threat even in our own time. So uh, maybe we should do this episode quickly is what you're saying. Well, I mean, it could, it, it, it's riven by internal conflict that I can't imagine will survive an apocalypse. Wow, you're making Belgium sound very sexy and exciting. Like it is. It, is. Have you just been watching some uh, European TV drama about Belgian political machinations and you think this is real? Or? I haven't, but from the first time I visited Belgium where I, uh, where I witnessed an argument between the conductors of the train and the guys who were down on the tracks working on the undercarriage of the train, uh -oh. where the conductors all spoke Flemish 
or Dutch, and the guys working down on the on the rolling stock were Wallonians, and they were yelling at one another in their individual languages, like making no attempt to speak to one another in a common language. I, but but they both understood what the other was saying. I like that they uh, have different jobs by nationality. It's like the Eloy and the Morlocks or something, you know, like yelling down at the at the Walloons below. Yeah, in their in their coveralls. So ever since then, I've been I've been fascinated. But let me ask you: Is Mons the correct pronunciation? It seems like it should be Mon. Yeah, in French, because this is in well, uh, the Walloon, the French-speaking part of Belgium. It's a, it's a city near the southern border of Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, the NS would be silent, like like how Le Mans is actually Le Mans. You Le know, Mans. It's not totally vowelless. You have to do the little nasal Le Mans. Mans. It kind of turns into something weird with your nose. Way, But is that also true in Belgium? Belgique. Uh, it would be, except there Belgique. are certain exceptions to the thing about the S being silent. For example, the city of... Mons um, yes. is, it, it also takes its name from, it comes directly from the Latin for Mount. It, it must be an elevated area. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the name kind of predates the phonetic rules that would make the S silent. So you actually do say the S. It's Mons. it's Mons. Mons. You still have to do the nasal thing, but then you have to turn it into an S, mm-hmm. which really, it makes the Belgians seem a bit high maintenance to think that I'm going to go to all this trouble. It's a four letter place name. Mons. 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 We right. should try to get through this episode saying it as little as possible. I feel like I'm going to say it as often as I can. A rolling stone gathers no moles. <laughs> it was the site of a battle during World War One, the First World War. The first... And it's one of the first battles of the First World War. Yes, it was kind of the first big debut of the, uh, of the British Army, the British Expeditionary Force during the First World War. At the time, of course, they were not calling it World War One yet. That would nope. have been very prescient. Right. Uh, <laughs> maybe we should do a show about that. When did the Great War, the War to End All Wars, become World War One? I? I mean, when did it even become the War to End All Wars? I doubt very much they were saying that in the early days. If it had, in fact, ended all wars, we might still call it that. Like, if there's no rise of Hitler in World War Two, maybe we would still say... Good job with that war to end all wars. Yeah, right. In 1925, it would have made sense to call it the war that ended all wars. Sure. But then in 1940, it would have seemed kind of a little bit uh, premature. Maybe even ironic. As a tagline, it didn't age all that well. Yeah, right. Right. It's the new Coke of uh, (laughs) war taglines. Of course, we're speaking at a time when two people who are familiar with dozens of, of world wars, they probably think it's charming that we only have two. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, any war could be the war to end all wars because who knows during a war whether it's the last war or not. Although some wars seem like World War I, at the end of it, it already was a bad name to call it the war to end all wars because there were so many resentments left over at the end of that war. No one, surely no one, believed that there would never be another war. It was maybe it was just a hopeful kind of magical thinking, you know, maybe if the branding is good enough, if we get good enough ads, if we get good enough awareness out there, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we get some influencers, we get some thought leaders Mm -hmm. to tell people that this is the war to end all wars, then uh, maybe there's no, you know, German resentment and inflation and rise of Hitler. Yeah. It feels a little bit like pre-stroke Woodrow Wilson talk. (laughs) Uh, But so here we are at the Battle of (laughs) the Battle of Mons. That sounds like after stroke would Wilson talk every time you say moles. Moles. <laughs> I guess well, I shouldn't be making ableist slurs about President Wilson. But we should stipulate to our listeners that the British are not 
at the time at least, their country did, was not part of the European continent. And so when the Germans invaded, how far back do you want to go into World War I? I suspect like you could do... What should we give you? Should we give you ninety seconds? For you World and I War could I? do a whole podcast, uh, like where every episode was just about World War One, but it would be and me then we doing eventually all the talking. Get, then, and then we eventually get to Domino's Pizza or whatever. <laughs> like, to really understand the Noid, you have to start with have to Archduke Ferdinand. You have to start with the Ottoman Empire, right. Alsace Lorraine. <laughs> Uh, Well, so at the beginning of the war, right, the French and the Germans assumed, or rather the French assumed that the Germans would be clashing with them directly across, primarily directly across the border between France and Germany. Mm -hmm. There was an understanding that Belgium was in play, but there was, uh, you know, the French were arrayed in such a way as to repel and advance by Germany straight across the German border. And the French actually made quite a few like offensive gestures, like they were going to attack the Germans. But then I, I had a French guy making a, an offensive gesture to well, me. Once. I think that's very common in France, and that was their plan at the time. They were going to go, ah, hey, yeah, <laughs> up of yours. They're like the French characters in a Monty Python sketch. Exactly. <laughs> I spit in your general direction. Uh, but then the Germans swung around through Belgium in a big, uh, in a big, like flanking maneuver called the Scheifelin Plan. I want to start saying things like flanking maneuver. Flanking. I feel like I'm at the age in my life where I can start reading big 800-page books about world wars and say oh, things like flanking maneuver. It's and such a wonderful and thing, and you know, and all, all uh, it's all leading up to a time when, in some attic of your house, you have a giant game board that looks, you know, that looks like the Battle of Salamanca, and you have all these little lead figures. I was just thinking, what if I start, start also start playing those 70s bookshelf games with names like? Wooden ships and Iron Men or uh, Austerlitz Adventure or something. Yeah, well, in the movie Ronin, I mean, it's that iconic scene where uh, where the French, like, uh, mastermind is painting his little Ronin characters. Who knows who he's playing or what he's up to? I love the idea that people that play those games are some kind of uh, successful genius masterminds and not huge weirdos. They're all, they're all <laughs> masterminds in the movies. I think in real life, I don't know what's happening. In real life, they're just hanging out at the sword store at the mall. But so the, the Germans swing around and all of a sudden they're on their way to Paris. Like no one was prepared for this, this brilliant move. Unfortunately, it wasn't planned that well because they extended past what their supply lines could handle. But all of a sudden, here we are, we're counting on the British who had a lot fewer troops than the Germans and the French. The German army was a million strong and the French army was a million strong and the British expeditionary force was like, less than 100,000 people. And here they are sort of having hopped over the English Channel, and they're the ones kind of standing there at the outside of this flanking maneuver, like, whoa, whoa, whoa! And this is right happening right around Mons. Yeah, in fact, they are badly outnumbered in Mons. It's a huge German army bearing down on them. And uh, on the morning of August 23rd, Germany opens fire. And we should say that the war starts, war is only declared the 1st of August. So this is three weeks from the beginning of the war. Not very long. It would, it would be quicker today, you know, when you think about gearing up massive machines back then, you know. The, it's not like a, one of your modern CNN wars where the drones can start at midnight. That's right, where, where the war is over in 14 days. Because here they had to, like, draw a lot of that stuff over on horseback. So it should have been an easy win for the Germans with, you know, kind of two to one superiority uh, over the British at Mons, mm-hmm. but it did not work out that way. Um, 
nine hours later, the Germans were unable to take advantage of their huge numerical superiority. Now, how is this possible? It seems like they should have just overrun the British. Now I'm playing the part of the, you know, I'm the interlocutor now. That's right. But I'm it like, assumes that I know or care exactly what strategic, <laughs> uh, what the down, strategic downfall of General von Kluck actually was. Okay. All right. Let's just assume that that's not very interesting. Do you know more about the strategic downfall no, of no, General no, no. von listen, Kluck? No, no, no. Listen, listen. I want to hear from you about the angels of moles, and I do not want to sit and paint my lead figurines here for everybody. <laughs> to, yeah. To me, your lead figurines of uh, General von Kluck on a, on a stallion are just obstacles between yeah. me and the angels. Yeah. The story that you really want to tell. And, and you're in my uh, attic room and you're moving my little guys around thinking like, oh, you know, here's your little friend. And I'm like, God, don't no, move put that. that. Put that, that back. Uh, <laughs> That's not till the second day. <laughs> so the British, the end result of the battle at the end of the day is that um, the British do hold up von Kluck's advance, mm -hmm. you know, wheeling around toward the French border by a day. And inflicted pretty heavy casualties, you know, certainly disproportionate to the small size of the British force trying to hold Mons. Um, their you know, much smaller army cost the Germans thousands and thousands of, of casualties. And in Britain, this was seen as a huge success. It was, it was a big propaganda success, you know, in all the papers, it was, you know, the bravery of our boys holding back the Jerry's. Jerry's? Is that from World War I? Uh, I think you could have said Jerry's, although they would have probably said the Hun. Holding back the Hun. The Holding Hun. back the Kaiser. Well, and this was, I mean, not to not to lead figurine you, but this was... Let's a, lead figurine it up. Let's get uh, some Thomas Midgley lead figurines in here. A lot of, uh, a lot of us think of World War I as being exclusively a trench war, but in these early days, it was a war still being fought in these kind of battles often they had, well, they hadn't dug the trenches. That's right. They didn't have a bunch of Wallonians in coveralls digging their trenches and putting up barbed wire. And it was a weird time in warfare because the, the generals still were executing cavalry charges like horses with sabers drawn. Uh, the horses didn't have sabers. The men on horses, comma, with sabers drawn. <laughs> um, yeah, you need to relook at your figurines. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, they all went through a Star Trek teleporter and now the horses have, why are the horses holding bayonets? But so they, but there were bicycles involved at this point, and right, you would move troops with bicycles yeah. because that was the way to go. Unfortunately, though, there were machine guns, which prior to this time there hadn't really been machine guns, and that was the problem, and that's what precipitated trench warfare. Because if you run a bunch of cavalry soldiers into just basically two people who have dug a hole and planted a machine gun there you're going to end up with a lot of bloodshed. But this is early, early in the war before those trenches are dug. So um, my wife has been listening to some of our early recordings before we bury them in our vault. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. she enjoys that you tend to say Calvary instead of cavalry. Oh, Calvary, it's yeah. A, like the hill where Jesus died. I, I have a lot of, uh, I think you would, what would you, you wouldn't You have a lot of as... religious fervor. Christian, Christian religious fervor is what you have. I do, but I also have a form of, uh, of malapropism that is like a trans... Um, substantiation. It's not transubstantiation. It's not transliteration. You're, trans, you're transposing the letter L I where it ought not to be. I transpose syllables in words quite often, and I just cannot be disabused of it. Well, transposition is one of the main ways in which language evolves. You know, in, in this day, if you say axe instead of ask, people might look down on you. But 
it doesn't last, you know, like right. eventually it becomes okay to say X comfort, comfortable Ow. instead of comfortable, comfortable, comfortable. You like putting the T before the R instead of after. Uh, I've noticed in the Northwest, and this seems counterintuitive because this feels like an Atlanta pronunciation, but if you listen to people in the Northwest in the United States at this time, uh, we say everybody, like everybody's coming, everybody's going to be there. Now, maybe you don't. You just made a face like you were belching up a hundred glasses of soda. I thought your air buddy is like when a kid is flying alone and the flight attendant gives him a special sticker and stuff. Oh, he's an air buddy. You get to choose orange or apple uh, juice, Mike. Which one are you? We're going to get to Denver in no time. That's, no, that's I, where your new uh, daddy is. I hear air, oh, where your new daddy is. I, I like <laughs> you didn't like it. you liked it before it was a weird custody situation in my story no I, well, where your new daddy is 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 on, actually on my business card right <laughs> under my name right under my email address we, uh, we were gonna call the podcast <laughs> where your new daddy is um but everybody is a thing that I get teased about a lot because you know I have generally pretty good diction but everybody I don't know where it came from it feels like something that I came up with you think it's Georgian do you think I, Michael Stipe says "Airbuddy hurts? I feel like, well, hmm, interesting. I do feel like "Airbuddy" is kind of a Southern drawl. It sounds like a country song. But somehow it's part of this strange, um, the Id- idiom of the Northwest. Did Air you Buddy. just say you say Roderick as three syllables? I say Roderick. I, I, have I been saying Roderick or do I say it wrong literally all the time? I have no idea. Well, the future, like a lot hangs on this. Roderick. People, people don't know if you're, if they're listening to me, they probably think your name is Roderick. John Roderick. I don't think so. I think if you said Roderick, I would have I would have corrected you. Well, I think if you said Airbuddy, I would have corrected you. But apparently, I have not. Uh, well, you definitely got my end of the deal. Corrected me for saying Calvary or Calvary. Cal- <laughs> I don't. I don't even know what you're how to say it now. It's because my wife was not here to do it for Calvary. There you go. Look at that. Calvary. Just, no, John is going to practice tonight saying Cavalry. I'm Calvary. Not really. Cavalry, Calvary. Then he'll start talking about Moldavia and it'll all go off the rails. I want to entertain your wife by every show mispronouncing at least one word. It's weird how your business card also says, I want to entertain your wife. (laughs) We we definitely shouldn't have called the show that. Where is your My name is John Roderick, three (laughs) syllables, and I'm here to entertain your wife. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so back to the battle of moles Mm -hmm. um, which is a huge success in the british papers but apparently not so much in reality uh, you know, in reality, the Germans gained a lot of confidence from the fact that they stood up to the British Expeditionary Force, took heavy casualties, 
and forced them back and started advancing on the industrial centers of, of northern France. It, everything's it, going great for von Kluck. I think at the time, the British Expeditionary Force was recognized, although small, recognized as a very formidable uh, fighting force. The way we might talk about SEAL Team 6, Yeah, they example. were, I mean, maybe not all the way to SEAL Team 6, but they were certainly, like, in a high rank. I got it. The way in the 90s we would talk about the Iraqi Republican Guard. Mm, when yeah, the, the okay. The scuds are falling, but, you know, everything's going well, but, hey, when the Iraqi Republican Guard... This is a reference that makes no sense in our day. Uh, well, that was Saddam Hussein's, like, uh, personal, Ninjas. like, sub-army. Yes. That was, uh, yeah, supposedly... We were very worried about them because supposedly they had this fighting acumen that had been honed in the Iran-Iraq wars. And sure, we're going to mow down all these regular draftees, but when we get to the Republican Guard in the palace, Look oh out. boy, Look, when, we, when the tanks get to Baghdad. They're going to be throwing shuriken at us. They're going to have curved Middle Eastern scimitars from some kind of Richard Francis Burton book. Yep. But it turned out that we just had a line of bulldozers and we just kept driving them until we got to the center of Baghdad. This is probably not the time for us to be super triumphalist about American military successes in Mesopotamia, John. No, it's true. And I, was, I, I wasn't even triumphalist. Tri triumphantalist? Triumph My wife loves how you always say triumphantalist, <laughs> which means uh, you want to be the daddy to three infants. Triumphalist. There you go. Uh, about it, even at the time, because of course, uh, during the first Iraq war, I was a dedicated grunge rock peacenik. Oh yeah. So I was like, boo. So at this point, our story turns to Arthur Mackin. We have to go back to 1863 when a young Arthur Mackin is born in Wales. He is a, uh, a poor Welsh child. He's born in Curleon, which in some accounts is actually, according to Geoffrey of Monmouth, was King Arthur's capital city. Huh. And uh, that's right. Know, there was some suspicion that King Arthur was from down thereabouts. Was Welsh. Yeah. And talked in some weird Welsh accent. You know, I'm Look Welsh. You. We've covered this before. Arthur Mackin uh, grows up in a country parsonage. I think his dad is a not particularly well-off churchman. Mm -hmm. um, I it, admire those. Is that, your, the, is that your favorite kind of churchman? Well, it's the well-off churchman that uh, I'm a little suspicious it's of. It's the gold-plated ones you got to look out for. <laughs> no. uh, he, uh, his family did not have a lot of money. He loved wandering the Roman ruins and pagan earthworks and burial mounds of that part of the country. You know, mm -hmm. this, he had a real sense of the, the age of the land. And uh, he goes to London as a young man to try to find his fortune. You know, his education has not worked out. He doesn't really have the money for... Oxbridge education. He goes to London to be a clerk. What he really wants to do is write because he's one of these, he's a bookworm type, you know, loves scholastical man, expert on everything. And he finds that as kind of an awkward stuttering loner, you know, he's very aware of the difference between himself and the gleaming young Oxford and Cambridge types, right. men, men of letters who are taking the salons, the salon or salons mm -hmm. of London by storm and, uh, you know, sort of producing gleaming Bon mot. This was at a time when that was, uh, when that kind of class distinction really, really mattered. And he felt it deeply. He was living in a little attic garret, a monastic little cell where there was a stepladder to go up to the, there was a ladder you could pull down to go up to the roof in case of fire. And he would actually line up his books on the shelves of his stepladder oh. because his little, you know, five foot by four foot room did not have a bookshelf. How charmingly dramatic. Poor Arthur. His first work was 1884's The Anatomy of Tobacco, kind of a tongue-in-cheek scholarly thing about different habits of smoking, different kinds, different varieties of pipe tobacco, uh, he, which he wrote under the name Leolinus Siluriensis, um, 
did not make much of a splash. Right. And this was a theme that would continue for Arthur throughout his long writing career. Maybe because the pen name was not that catchy. You wouldn't line up for a book by Leolinus Siluriensis? The interesting thing is that's Latin for lemony snicket. A lot of people don't oh, know that. Yeah. Hmm. He also wrote a, a kind of a medieval pastiche called The Chronicle of Clemendy a few years later, which again, nobody liked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things were not going well for Arthur. And throughout his life, he would always have to scramble. Uh, even when he became a transatlantically famous short story writer, he still was not earning the money you would expect given his level of fame. At one point, his early out-of-print books were going for 1,500 pounds, huh. uh, which would be $7,500 on our side of the Atlantic at the time, you know, around circa 1910, which at the time was, you know, sure. a great yearly salary. Right. And yet poor Arthur is making a pittance. You know, he, he probably made no more than 600 pounds total in his lifetime for his work. No kidding. His work in its own time was collected? Yeah. In the 1920s, he was a sensation wow. in, in the Americas. And yet he's making 50 pounds a year, maybe. Wow. Because he was writing uh, what at the time was weird fiction. Mm -hmm. In our day, the word weird has kind of become devalued by kids just to mean strange, you know. Anything's weird. Right. But at the time it was... I can't find my phone. That's so weird. But at the time, there was weird with a capital W. It was right. macabre, bizarre tales of the supernatural. And not just haunted house, gothic haunted houses. He loved that kind of stuff. He loved Edgar Allan Poe. But he was really into kind of the horrific side of great unspeakable evils. He wrote uh, his, his first early work along these lines is a novella called The Great God Pan mm. about a woman who gets, you know, taken into the wilderness by some kind of mm. shaggy occult creature. Sure, ravished by a cloven-hooved forest god. Temp tempter, yes, uh, uh, from some prehistoric time. And sure enough, decades later, some terrible woman is on some terrible crime spree in London, and it turns out to be this woman's daughter born nine months after her tryst with the occult forces of whatever they're occult forces of uh -huh. darkness. Forces of shadow, at least. Was this the inspiration for the Cliff Richard 1970s hit, Devil Woman? I don't know for a fact that it's not. It's very, it was a very unusual hit. Cliff Richard, not, not really famous for this kind of tune, had a late career. Uh, I think of him as kind of some Peter Pan boyish faced uh, pop idol. Yeah, with a, like a quiff and a like a bolo tie or something. But in the seventies, he had this like kind of like broody, almost as though he had had a tryst with a cloven hooved devil. Or maybe he just got the first Zeppelin record. Yeah, somebody else wrote him a tune and liked the Tolkien songs. Um, anyway, so Arthur Mackin started to have a fairly successful career in this vein, writing these. Tales of the Macabre with names like uh, The Terror or The White, the Red Hand, mm. Out of the Earth, about eldritch ancient gods. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he was a, an influence on H.P. Lovecraft, the American genre writer, probably best known for pulp stories about un unspeakable evils and ancient gods and pagan whatevers. Mm -hmm. That basically created the universe of pop culture in our own time. It's true. Yeah. I mean, uh, we are all descendants of this. It was just one guy's kind of weird hobby. And now it's a whole genre. Like we take it for granted that that's what horror should be. Yeah. Our contemporary time, if it isn't some kind of undead creature, it is like a sub God ruling us from a meteor floating uh, in near space. Tentacled old 
gods. Do you, have you read Lovecraft? Uh, not as much as I feel like I should have. I didn't do my full bath in science fiction and, and genre horror. And I think partly it's that horror never especially interested me. Maybe I'm a little skittish. I don't like to read things about UFOs after the sun goes down. You actually find them scary. That's really scary. I do. If I'm browsing the web in the middle of the night and something takes me to a true UFO accounting of how somebody was grabbed out of their house in the middle of the night, I close the page. Well, it takes you back to bad memories. It does. It does. Back when all of my pillows turned to owls. (laughs) The, uh, the the thing that I find about Lovecraft is it's, I I guess I've never found that kind of writing especially scary because there's an awful lot of, uh, narrators telling you words cannot describe the swirling evil that oh, met my eyes. Right. There are no, no language can convey the <laughs> horrid <laughs> macabre occult blackness that gripped my very heart. You know, mm-hmm. the whole horror is just telling you that yeah, there's no way for them to describe the horror. Yeah. You, you will never know what the horror is, but let me just take my word for it. It's super horror-y. I guess I, I read so little of it that I don't even know how to mock it. I think some people would find it scary. Maybe it's better to actually do that than to tell people the ghost quivered in the, in the light of the... Ectomorphic sure. ectomorph. But it does seem like a bit of a cheat. Like if you were reading like a, a, some kind of techno thriller, you wouldn't be like, I can't convey how exciting the car chase was <laughs> through the streets of Paris. It was really, really, my heart was pounding. But eventually we got to the river, you know, like you, you wouldn't take that no. in, in any other genre. You wouldn't put up with that crap. I realize I just said ectomorph instead of ectoplasm. Ectomorph <laughs> being just like a way of describing body types. No, that's very scary to me. Ectomorphs? Yeah. What if somebody with, I don't even know what an ectomorph is. Do they have a little bit of a tummy? No, uh, isn't an ectomorph someone who is really tall and thin? Oh, well, that is super scary. Well, sure. Lovecraft was very, th- have you seen pictures of Lovecraft? He's got this kind of long bony jaw, like he's the some uh, circus giant. Like I almost wonder if he had acromegaly or, or Marfan syndrome or something like that. Well, you have to assume that a lot of these, I don't know if you have to assume, but. Uh, no, you do. We're, but, we're, the, we're the only part of history our listeners have. But are, you they have, literally have to assume now, whatever you, you're going to say. You have to assume that a lot of these stories were transmitted to us by UFOs and bug people who had come to earth as early, like as advance parties to corrupt our own culture so that we self-destructed so that they Soften could eat our up. brains. Well, it certainly right. worked like, like as a meme, Cthulhu now does kind of, you know, he was a God who never had any worshipers and now he's got hundreds of thousands of people citing him ironically online. Like more people know stories of Cthulhu than, you know, Thor or Bast. Right. Maybe, maybe not Thor. He's got best-selling movies. Well, but Thor, like, yeah, Thor. Thor was in Heimdall. Adventures in Babysitting. <laughs> some, some B-grade Norse god or, or uh, Germanic <laughs> god, right? He was also incredibly racist, if that's true. Mm-hmm. Like, he was also here to make us more racist. Mm. He, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft hated uh, Jews, hated uh, any kind of mongrelization that he thought could threaten the white race, even, even by the standards of his day. Here to make us more racist is... Please welcome H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft. As if we weren't racist enough. The H.P. actually stands for hates... Hates... People of color. Yeah. <laughs> it's all... It's, it's Lovecraft. It, it was hyphenated at that time, <laughs> in, in, the, in the style of the time. Arthur Mackin, not particularly uh, racist, as far mm-hmm. as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, live and let live kind of guy. Although, one of his greatest stories is called The White People. Mm. 
But meaning something other than just white people. Yeah, it's not about NPR. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the White Walkers. It's something. not set at a podcasting convention <laughs> in Seattle. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the white people are exactly some kind of uh, uh, unknowable, mysterious fairy type right. creatures. His theory, w- uh, which a lot of his stories uh, center around, uh, is that there's, he has this mythos of the little people. Mm-hmm. In other words, that the, the magical creatures who inhabited the British Isles were not sweet sylph-like fairies Mm. with wings. They were not wee, playful leprechauns. Mm -mm. These legends come to us transmitted from a time of just terrible goblins. There actually were little misshapen dwarves Mm. running amok over the British Isles in in pagan times. And these stories have been corrupted to us. To make it seem cute. Yeah. So, you know, now they're Rumpelstiltskin or whatever, or Tinkerbell. It's another example of uh, somebody came along and said, no, no, don't be... Don't be afraid of the elves. They're really very darling. And you could, your children can buy dolls of them and take them home. It's all getting inside our head. It's all trying to lay the groundwork. It's, all, it's Walt Disney, basically. Yeah. Walt Disney saw these terrifying stories and thought he could bring down the culture by making kids into enjoy saccharine versions of them, I guess. Right. When, the, uh, when people finally realize that the earth is flat, when the doors to the city under the North Pole finally open and all these creatures come pouring out, We'll be like, aren't they cute? Right as they start eating our brains. Here's a little excerpt from The White People, my favorite Mackin story. Uh, it's got a little, what do you call it? A frame narrative in which two men are meeting over drinks mm. and discussing the nature of evil. You mm-hmm. know, one of them says that evil is not just doing bad deeds. That's a nuisance. You know, if somebody picks your pocket, that's a nuisance. Evil is really something stranger and far more horrifying. And he says, witness this, for example, and brings out this small green book, which is a child's journal. And the bulk of the story is this child's firsthand narrative of of a little girl as she kind of wanders away from her country home into a desolate, thickety wilderness that starts to get stranger and stranger. And as she recalls the things her, her, her governess, her nurse has been teaching her since childhood, strange new alphabets and languages and rituals. You can, you you know, the kind of thing, right? Yeah, This is the type of thing I don't like. Okay. So John, cover your ears for this very scary excerpt. It was wintertime, and there were black, terrible woods hanging from the hills all around. It was like seeing a large room hung with black curtains, and the shape of the trees seemed quite different from any I had ever seen before. I was afraid. Then beyond the woods there were other hills round in a great ring, but I had never seen any of them. It all looked black, and everything had a vor over it. It was also still and silent, and the sky was heavy and gray and sad, like a wicked vorish dome in deep dendo. I went on into the dreadful rocks. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. Some were like horrid, grinning men. I could see their faces as if they would jump at me out of the stone and catch hold of me and drag me with them back into the rock so that I should always be there. And there were other rocks that were like animals, creeping, horrible animals, putting out their tongues. And others were like words that I could not say, and others like dead people lying on the grass. I went on among them, though they frightened me, and my heart was full of wicked songs that they put into it. And I wanted to make faces and twist myself about in the way they did. And I went on and on a long way, till at last I liked the rocks, and they didn't frighten me any more. I sang the songs I thought of, songs full of words that must not be spoken or written down. Then I made faces like the faces on the rocks, and I twisted myself about like the twisted ones, and I lay down flat on the ground like the dead ones, and I went up to one that was grinning and put my arms round him and hugged him. And it goes on in this vein, a single unbroken paragraph for pages and pages and Mm. pages as she Mm. gets deeper and deeper into this weird landscape and her own weird mind Mm. and her own corrupted childhood. 
Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com start and there's kind of a sexual vibe that the victorians did not like in arthur mackin's work uh-huh it was a little bit uh titillating he was a mystic he thought that when he was writing he was communing with some, you know, he was having an ecstatic revelatory experience. He, he probably, was hugging a grinning rock himself. Yeah, metaphorically. He probably, mm-hmm. maybe he thought all his little people stuff was true. Hmm. But he was, he was scared of it. He was also a devout Anglo-Catholic, mm-hmm. which I guess gave him the point of view to know how scary and dark all this stuff and threatening all this stuff really was to he his was immortal soul. spooked by his own writing? I think so. Hmm. You know, it wasn't making him any money. It was, it was definitely a... Uh, a labor of love for him to write these odd stories that people actually made people angry and wanted to ban. You I'll, definitely get the sense that a lot of creators of manga comics are, uh, are actually being pretty like transported by their own creation. Yeah. What is it about tentacles? What is it about weirdos that hmm. write about tentacles? Hmm. Whether the tentacles belong to elder gods hmm. or uh, sexy uh, jellyfish. I, for one, welcome my tentacled overlords and tentacled future podcasts. Our listeners probably, you know, hit play on this with suction cup tentacle fingers. So I should be careful about my weird revulsion. Mm -hmm. Words cannot describe the strange fear that gripped my heart as I imagined a future tentacled hand rising from a gray ocean. Now, not to inhibit your storytelling, but can you bring this back to the angels of Mole? Oh, there's no relationship at all. <laughs> I've just been possessed by a, by a, by a dark god mm-hmm. who wants me to do his mm-hmm. bidding. Mm-hmm. This actually does come back around to the angels of Mons. Mackin had to make a living in you know many ways in, in order to support himself because the stories were not doing it. He didn't like working as a journalist, but he did from who time would? to time. Uh, I can't imagine. Ugh. And in September 1914, the end of September, just a month after the Battle of Mons. He had been inspired by accounts of it he had read, which, you know, in the British papers were a glowing victory, even though it was right. if, at best a Pyrrhic victory and actually turned into a retreat. This was at a time when the newspapers did not tell the entire truth about events. If we could imagine it in our own time that a news outlet might skew their reporting of a thing. Hard to believe. This was at a time when the British newspapers tried to rah, rah, rah the country behind their military exploits. And as late as World War II, I think that was still happening, you know, from what I understand. Absolutely. Uh, And when I say that, I mean from a movie I just watched about Winston Churchill. Uh, He wrote a story called The Bowman, Mm -hmm. um, based on the story of Britain's unlikely victory, so unlikely it didn't happen, at the Battle of Mons, in which he imagines a, a thousand British troops pinned down at a very important point on the lines at Mons, uh, they're in a trench in his story. 
a much larger German infantry troop is bearing down on them. 10,000 men against just 500 who are left. And of course, they have no shortage of targets. So they're picking them off one at a time and kind of making hollow jokes about their impending doom because there's just this, you know, no matter how many they hit, 10 Hun of the Hun. Mm-hmm. Right. Hun is an uncountable noun, weirdly. It's not 10 Huns. It's 10 of the Hun. 10 Hun. Uh, rise to take their place. And so they're kind of, you know, telling gallows jokes and singing, it's a long way to Tipperary and we'll never come back because they all know they're going to die. But just at that moment when they're, you know, have made their peace with their non-Eldritch gods, mm-hmm. um, one of them happens to remember eating at a vegetarian restaurant in London, eating some fake steak cutlet made out of nuts and how the plates all had a picture of St. George and it had a motto, Adsit Anglis Sanctus Georgius. May St. George be a present help to the English. You know, this idea that St. George, like King Arthur or Barbarossa or whoever, can rise again when his people need him. Sure. So the soldier, after, you know, remembering his, uh, the Latin he learned in a vegetarian restaurant, actually says this uh, invocation to himself, you know, because if, if Britain never needed St. George, surely it was right now. And then they start to hear great voices, a tumult of voices from afar above the lines. He hears, he hears thousands acclaiming St. George, you know, grant us good deliverance, St. George for Mary England. You know, he hears kind of these anachronistic war cries coming up from above the trench. Uh, and I quote, and as the soldier heard these voices, he saw before him beyond the trench, a long line of shapes with a shining about them. They were like men who drew the bow. And with another shout, their cloud of arrows flew singing and tingling through the air towards the German hosts. Now, Arthur Mackin puts this story in the paper in which the, the bowmen of Agincourt, you know, who had, who had defeated the French with the longbow. Wait a minute. How did Agincourt enter into this? It's true. There's, there's a big time gap between St. George and Agincourt. Well, and also uh, quite a geographical gap. I mean, <laughs> Agincourt is directly west of Mons in France, not really connected to Mons in any way. Uh, well, to be fair, they did have 500 years to, to get there. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> these these uh, ghostly apparitions, these spirits, uh, apparently are not tied to the battleground where they defeated the French with the longbow. They've just been wandering around waiting for someone to invoke St. George. Waiting for somebody to remember that magical phrase, apparently. Well, I guess it is an English expeditionary force in France. They're fighting the Germans, but not the French. But if you're English, who cares? They're they're all terrible Europeans. You Boy, hate them all. You, you hate the Continentals. You said a mouthful. You, they nobody can make a proper English breakfast. Uh, nobody will give you directions to no, the to the cathedral. They're, they're, they're all, they're all those, terrible. Those continental breakfasts with like a little yogurt and some muesli. Ugh. Uh, so so you're saying as they are uh, retreating in an orderly fashion. They suddenly hear these longbowmen of Agincourt calling to them? As they are pinned down and about to die a terrible death in a trench, the ghosts of the, Aven- the Agincourt bowmen appear uh-huh. and firing their uh, ectoplasmic arrows, uh-huh. they save all 500 of these men. Spooky. Uh, the, the story ends with a kind of a, a, a mock factual... In fact, there were 10,000 dead German soldiers left before that salient of the English army. And consequently, there was no sedan. Uh, it doesn't mean that their means, Uber didn't come. Right. It's it talking means, about the, ba- <laughs> the legendary defeat at the Battle of Sedan. Um, were there any Germans who had arrow wounds? Like in the real battle? 
Right. No. So this is uh, all... And in fact, these Germans didn't have Erwin's either. Here, here's what Mackin wrote. In Germany, a country ruled by scientific principles, the great general staff decided that the contemptible English must have employed shells containing an unknown gas of a poisonous nature as no wounds were discernible on the bodies of the dead German soldiers. This is, this is like Rod Serling coming up at the end. Oh. And, or, or Alfred Hitchcock and saying, can you believe it? There were no wounds. But the men who were there, no that it was the Agincourt Bowman who had risen again in England's hour of need. And then there's theremin music. Spooky. And so this runs in the paper where Mackin submitted his journalism and occasionally short fiction. And it was not weird for papers to print short stories back then. Mm-hmm. You know, Mackin's story in the following years was always that he never intended anyone to believe any of this. He would protest strongly that people were reading his short story too literally. But in the weeks and especially months and especially six months after the story ran, people really ran with the idea that there had been literal bowmen often turned into robed Christian angels hovering above the battlefield in Mons, rescuing the pinned down British troops. And people who managed to trace it back to his his journalism or his, his short story would write him asking, you know, which soldiers gave you these accounts? And he would have to say, Dummy, it's a short story. Oh, so this took on a life of its own, disconnected from the original story. Yes. And now had ju- just became sort of a, like, received knowledge. Yeah, and people would say, it was a friend of a friend thing. Yeah, I, um, you know, my... Uh, oh, my friend. Yeah, my, my friend's son was actually there, and he says that there were literal angels, and this became part of the narrative in the war. There was probably a, probably a, a fairly official propaganda effort to prop up stories like this, God did, is on our side. Did soldiers that had served in that uh, battle actually come back and start telling stories about this? Was it a way to get people to buy you drinks in the bar? I think there are a few firsthand accounts. In, in these, it describes cavalry. It describes uh, literally spirits on horses right. ra- racing in and upsetting the German lines. But yeah, I think people found out it was a great way to have a good story and, and get somebody to buy you a, a pint. You know, it's, a, it's the climactic scene in the Lord of the Rings film. Uh, when the army of the dead, as animated by the ranger king Aragorn, Aragorn, who goes and speaks the uh, "You owe us a debt" speech to the skeleton king, to the skeleton or whatever, king, the paths says, of the dead. That's right. You get you guys come one more time and fight on behalf of uh, of the army of men, and we'll we'll free you from your curse. Well, there's so many myths about kings who have said they will do this. You know, mm-hmm. and none of them have ever made good. <laughs> the kings have never showed up, but in this one story, they did, and it was obviously that was the appeal of it to a lot of people. And I think a generation grew up thinking this was a real thing. Arthur Mackin lived the rest of his life in poverty, protesting that this had never happened. Um, but people did not want to hear it. Now, wait a minute. Did Henry V actually promise his armies would rise up again? No. I don't remember that I from think it's, Shakespeare. It seems to be a package deal where King Arthur or St. George or whoever has the ability to command subordinates from other time periods. I get you, I get you. And it makes you wonder, why wouldn't he bring in, you know, if St. George can really do this, why isn't he bringing in extra tanks or... Uh, sure. Like, why is he limited to the longbow? Although this this battle would have happened pre-tank. Not uh, not to bring out my little lead figurines again. <laughs> I mean, he could have at least called up the Duke of Wellington like some kind of slightly more modern English army. Bring somebody right? with cannons for yeah, crying exactly. out loud. Yeah, exactly. Like know? muskets at the very least. Really? The longbow? St. George? That's Maybe there's a, maybe there's a gap. You know, there's a statute of limitations. Like he mm-hmm. has power of all English armies up to a thousand years after his death. 
I do feel like there's something so dramatic about using longbows, though. Like it would be, so, it would be like a quadruple humiliation for the troops on the other side who are like, ah, we have these machine guns, but oh, ah, they, were, ach, they might say, ach, du lieber, ach, my machine gun is nothing against this ghostly arrow. <laughs> Scheiße, <laughs> thump. And uh, so it's a case where a a wholly fictional story was so good that it inserted itself into history and replaced the, the actual, actual history. Story. I mean, that's a great author who can do that. I think we've probably, though, in the interim, have debunked the story so that it doesn't, it won't have traction into the future. Like so many other interesting things happened, even in the next four years. It seems like it's not going to be one of the legendary stories. Well, the problem is the angels. You know, we're not prone to stories about angels appearing anywhere, you know, even appearing in a, a, like on a, soppy, piece of toast. a, a soppy fox drama. Yeah, or a piece <laughs> of toast. You know, we're, we're skeptical about a Michael Landon type angel showing up on your farm to save it from foreclosure, much less a troop on a, a battlefield. I wonder if that will change into the future. I wonder if we're at like peak angel hater, like we are the last of this era of um, dubious science people who, who look at angels askance and whether we're headed into an era where angels make a big reappearance. Probably. In which case, maybe the story of the angels of moles will be referenced as an example of a 20th century, like angel intervention. What I wonder about the future is, you know, when you think back of what most you know, lay people today know about the past, you know, tell, tell me something about British history. You know who they're going to mention is like, oh yeah, Robin Hood, King Arthur, Lady Godiva, you know, mm -hmm. they're going to list you, give you a list of people who may not have ever existed. Right. And if Gimli. they did, <laughs> that, that famous English <laughs> historical character, <laughs> Gimli, <laughs> like they're not going to, they know nothing about some guy who actually had corporeal essence and power. Sure. Like they actually think that these fictional stories are real. And that will probably be true of our future listeners thinking about our day. You know, when, hmm. when they're asked about the great adventurers of the 20th century, they might say, oh, yeah, Indiana Jones. You're, sure, you're Moana. Great. <laughs> Moana. Well, yeah, Tony Soprano. You know, <laughs> did you ever get to meet Tony Soprano, Ken? <laughs> Tell us of his deeds. You know, like they're going to have no idea who actually lived and who didn't because in the end it rarely matters. Right, especially now that our media is so devoted to appearing to be documentary. Right, like uh, sure, like, like it's very, very convincing. The difference between watching the program The Crown, which is about an actual queen and dramatizing her actual life, and watching Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec is going to look more realistic to our future <laughs> listeners. They're, they're thinking, they think it's a documentary about small town American life. Although you know, Portlandia is even more accurate than the reality it tries to portray. Well, that's what they always say. You know, when legend becomes truth, print the legend because. It's just a better story. And that concludes The Angels of Mons. Entry 047.PS9111. Certificate number 21873 in the omnibus. Listeners, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and it becomes more and more unlikely with every passing day. When we first started saying this, even a few months ago, it seemed still a little tongue-in-cheek. 
I thought there might actually be uh, be Facebook a thousand years hence. Yeah, we were like, ah, you know, Twitter is having a rough patch, but it doesn't seem like it, it will ever go away. But more and more, everyone I talk to is like, forget it. Forget it. We're, t- we're speaking to people who think Mark Zuckerberg was a fictional character. Right. Mark Zuckerberg and the Queen of England are basically uh, contemporaneous. Well, and in fact, they are. They're both characters in one of the Moana movies. <laughs> uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram will not exist, surely, even five years from now. But we utilize them in our time. And on all three of the social media platforms, we could be found at Omnibus Project. We also maintained independent presences on those uh, social media platforms. Ken and I used to enjoy ourselves very much on Twitter. He was known as at Ken Jennings, and I was at John Roderick. Those laughs seem a little hollow now, though we know that Twitter eventually destroyed the, uh, the oh, world. All it was life on Earth. so fun. We had so much fun. We laughed. We lolled. We we pooned each other. We lolcatted. Did you? Is that how you pronounce? Pooned? I don't know. Pooned? Is that what you would say? I always say pwned to rhyme with oh, owned. Pwned. Yeah, I guess that's better. Pwned. It doesn't have poon in it, which helps. Well, anyway, uh, we don't lol cat anymore. All we do is cower. Although Ken still tries to be funny. <laughs> Our uh, address for email was uh, omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. And finally, uh, we have slash had a fan group on Facebook, uh, which you can find using even the most rudimentary internet skills by simply looking for Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook. If you cannot do that, I'm astonished that you have managed to listen to a a podcast. Even if all you have is a printout of the internet that has somehow survived. That's right. Or or, uh, the names of Facebook accounts chiseled into stone, you should be able to find the one that says Omnibus Futurelings. Omnibus Futurelings. And you will find, as we have found, that Futureling is quite a bit easier to say than it is to write. It looks weird. We now regret coining it uh, orally because we're now stuck with its hideous typographic offspring. Yeah, you just have this U-R-E-L combination, which is just, it looks weird to the eye, but it is futurelings. Let me ask you this, John. What if instead of the U, it had W's? Would you be into that? Futurelings. I, I could I could get into that. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long we are going to survive. We are not the immortal fictional characters of the past. You remember your Mary Poppinses, your Luke Skywalker's. We are mere flesh and blood, John and I. We're the only past people you know existed. We hope and pray that the cataclysm, the eschaton, the singularity we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this entry, this rambling, odd entry, like every entry in the omnibus, may be our final word. But if providence allows, if the angels allow, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. (laughs) 